0: in the chapter 12, Genesis in the chapter 12 once more. And this time we're entering into the chapter not at the first verse, but rather at the tenth verse. So Genesis in the chapter 12, but tonight we're picking up a reading in the verse 10 of the chapter. We're going to read down through to the end of this chapter also. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarah his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister." that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. It came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld a woman that she was very fair. The princess also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and he-asses and men-servants and maidservants and she-asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why, sayest thou, she is my sister, so I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all. That he had, and in our reading there at the verse twenty, and may the Lord indeed bless it to our hearts, as we come together tonight, well, our endeavor is simple it 's to finish up our studies here in the Abrahamic covenant we 'll leave just one theme untouched as we reserve it for next week to serve as a bridge, and it will help us then enter into the next covenant that we come to consider that being the Mosaic covenant. And God willing, that will take us also a period of three weeks after next week's message, and then will come the Christmas break. And it's hard to believe we're talking about that word already with great clarity and indeed great certainty. But here we are in a countdown of sorts, and there's no doubt that the weeks will gather peace even as they pass. But reflecting on what we've already considered thus far, we know that we have set the scene, the context for the covenant before we ever delved into it, and so we considered how God called Abraham, how He comforted Abraham, and then also how He commanded Abraham. Last week, our considerations revolved around that four-point framework that we'll endeavor to use time after time as we consider all that the covenant involved. And that took up our deliberations last week as we came together around God's Word. But this week, we come to tie up the loose ends We come to provide a little commentary on the immediate response that the giving of the covenant evoked within the life and in the times of Abraham. We do so, I believe, for legitimate reasons, because you will be well aware from your own understanding of this portion of Scripture, the chapters that cover Abraham's life, the chapters that cover uh, the entire giving of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, that there are several events contained in these chapters that leave us scratching our heads just a little. We see on the one hand a man full of faith, a man who is described in the Word of God as being the friend of God, a man who enjoyed communion with God in a way perhaps that none of the other patriarchs truly enjoyed. But yet on the other hand, we see also one who at times proved to be unfaithful to God. One who was inconsistent in his walk. One who was single-minded in his actions. And so instead of trucking on by and carrying on into the next covenant, we will, I trust, benefit from a study of these themes. As we tie off these loose ends of all that we've studied already. Now, I'd say at the outset that none of this should be taken as an attempt to undermine this man, nor indeed should it succeed in clouding your view or appreciation of this man. When all is said and done, we should rightly hold Abraham in high regard and consider him truly to be a giant of the faith. But as we look at some of these themes tonight, we will, I believe, see a man who struggled with what we struggle with. A man who went faced with trials and temptations similar to us, and a man whose testimony then includes a reality of failure and falling. I dare say that many amongst us tonight can relate such a testimony also. And I find it refreshing time after time as we come to the Word of God and we consider great characters of the faith, men and women who have lived lives that are exemplary and held even in high esteem as we come to consider them as being Bible characters. But nevertheless, the Bible never seeks to paper over what was the warts of their character, the unsavory moments that they find themselves in. Rather, it reminds us constantly that they were people such as you and I. They faced struggles such as you and I do, and they knew moments of triumph and indeed moments of great defeat and disaster. And from all of that, I do believe that the Bible would have us to take heart. The things that we come to, they're not the first time they've been faced. The trials that are in your life, the trials that have come into my life, it's not the first time that believers have come to such a period. So we can turn to the Word of God and we can be refreshed in our own souls. We can be encouraged in the inner man that God is with us. And there is a purpose and He has a plan. Yes, even in the darkest of our. As we come to consider this tonight, it's not my intention in any way to condemn anyone if they've perhaps a testimony that could be akin to some of what we will consider tonight. It's not my desire to make you feel less than worthy. But it is to remind one and all that great men and women of the faith, they have known victory and defeat, as we've said. They have battled through those discouragements, even depression, but through all the changing times of life, God remained faithful to them. God will remain faithful to you. That's the encouragement that we take. And so, as we come to the Word of God tonight, we're considering this portion of the 12th chapter, and we see in this chapter the beginning of what I have termed the wasted years, the wasted years. The opening verses of this chapter have formed the basis of our considerations in previous studies, but now we switch our attention to the back end of the chapter. We see a predominant theme of failure, all because of pride. Remember, we are identifying failure and wasted years after the call of God. That's what we read off in the opening verses of this chapter. God called Abraham, and then we see that he stepped out to obey the call. So, as we come to the end of the chapter, we're reflecting on failure. We're reflecting on those times whenever Abraham, no doubt, would look back and say, I wish I could have done it differently. This was all, of course, after that he had come to that knowledge of God and after that he had entered into that life of following God. Now, you might automatically say, well, surely is it not true to say that his life before God, before his knowledge of God, before his following of God, were they not wasted years? Undoubtedly, that is true. Is there anyone here tonight who doesn't wish that they come to Jesus Christ sooner? Is there anyone here who believes that the years before coming to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation were years of value, years of blessing, years of untold goodness and joy? I think not. And so immediately we say that the 75 years of Abraham's life spent in he of the Chaldees were wasted years of that there is no doubt. Coming as we do to the Word of God in this hour, our focus is upon that which we as believers know to be of even greater significance. Years when our walk with God is distant. Our love for God is cold. Our openness to the voice of God is but a memory. And I tell you that that is the saddest experience for any believer the saddest experience of wasted years always belongs to the wayward believer. Always. Now notice in first 10 how it all begins. It tells us there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Here in this verse, we see very clearly that Abraham is now determining his own course. Yes, he stepped out to follow God at the beginning of the chapter, but here in this verse, as he faces this problem, there's no indication that God has revealed what step he should take. There is no, indeed, word from God that he is obeying, that he is heeding, that he is following. No, here is a man who is determining his own course. The Bible says that he went down to Egypt. So, as we come to consider this tonight, we see a man who, when faced with a trial, when faced with a problem, when faced with the reality of a famine, made his own determination, plotted his own way. Abraham makes this decision, he's doing that with the burden of responsibility weighing heavily upon him. And you and I come to this tonight and remember hindsight is always 20 20 So you and I can rightfully identify that Abraham made the wrong choice. But what we must do for our consideration tonight is simply ask ourselves, when faced with the same set of circumstances, when feeling the same weight of responsibility, when being asked the same questions. What would I have done? It's the same reality that was faced by Elimelech in the of earth. For there a daddy looking into the eyes of two little boys. Two little boys who were hungry. Two little boys who were expectantly waiting for daddy to provide what daddy was be bound to provide. Now, Limelech knows that he can't because there's a famine in Bethlehem, Judah. But on the other hand, he knows that just approximately 15 miles away is a land where there is no famine, there is an abundance. And those two little boys who look expectantly at their father can know the provision of all that they want, all that they need. Tell me tonight, what would you do? These he and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidst thou she is my sister, so I might have taken her to me to wife? Now behold, take thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. This is how it worked out. He was exposed. He was humiliated. And he was exiled. Wrong decision absolutely. Wasted years? Absolutely. But the tale of wasted years doesn't end there. Come across to chapter 16. Chapter 16, and let's read together from the verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, bare him no children. She had had a handmaid, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. And Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptians, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thine hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarah dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness by the fountain and the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself unto her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude." And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. He will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thy God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the name or wherefore the well was called Berlehorai. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. Was this God's plan? No. Was this all according to God's command? No. Was this once more entirely the wrong decision? Yes. And this decision in this moment as we view it here in chapter 16 was based upon two emotions, impatience and unbelief. Now we all have faced these two foes in our lives. But what leads to instant failure is when we suffer from them both at the same time. Impatience is defined as our inability to recognize that God is on His own timetable. Unbelief is the inaccurate view that God is not able. And so as we come to view all that happens here in chapter 16, we see two individuals who are impatient, and we see two individuals who are filled with unbelief. And the consequences are huge. We must remember as we consider this passage that Sarah never receives the promises directly from God as Abraham did. So as we come to this 16th chapter, we see a woman in continuing barrenness. I have sympathy for Sarah in this moment. There was undoubtedly a stigma attached to this reality, a pressure that she alone bare. And as she faced up to this reality, I see someone who carried a heavy burden and who knew a grievous wound. This led to Sarah concocting a plan. The plan is given to us very clearly there in the verses 2 and 3. The plan is, of course, that Hagar the maid would uh, be given unto Abram. He would go in unto her, and by that relationship, there would be the hope that offspring would come. Now, the plan that's mentioned here in verses 2 and 3, while, of course, not, uh, doesn't sit well with us today, was, in fact, something that was culturally and morally acceptable in that time. It was a plan which also arrived, allowed them, remember, to arrive at the promises of God and at the place that they themselves wanted to be far quicker than simply waiting on God in verse 4, we see clear evidence that the plan worked. It tells us he went in unto Hagar and she conceived. The plan worked. From barrenness to the expectation of a son. But remember, this was a plan which set aside God's revealed will to Abraham. And this was a perfect example and remains to be a perfect example of when worldly reasoning trumps the Word of God. You see, there's no doubt that if this happened today, there would be many who would pat Sarah on the back and say, well done, you're doing what you can do, and you're doing it your way. But friend, make no mistake about it, Sarah here is stepping outside of God's will. And someone who up until this moment has been depicted in the Word of God as a humble wife, seemingly willing to follow Abraham as he follows God, is now revealed for who she really is. And the principle that we see in this evidence that is before us is applicable to us all tonight. To every man and to every woman in this building, it's applicable to us no matter what stage of life we're at, no matter what we face in our lives, and no matter who we think we are. When things aren't going our way, and when we are upset with what God has permitted in our lives, what is on the inside comes out. And many times it's not pretty. And I say that not to condemn, but rather to remind us all that what is on the inside is of far greater importance than anything you and I perceive on the outside. Notice in verse 4 that the Word of God says, "...when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes." And Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. And in these verses, we see evidence of the first mention of marital strife. This is the first mention of tension that comes in and animosity that comes in to a marital relationship. This is all, remember, the result of not waiting on God, impatience. This is all the result of not trusting in God, unbelief. And for Sarah, it was a matter of the heart. And that remains true to this very day. Now, the emphasis tonight is not seeking to scrutinize your marriage or anyone else's marriage, but rather the emphasis is upon scrutinizing your heart. Remember, the Word of God tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And we're encouraged in the Word of God to keep our hearts with all diligence. Why? For out of it, the heart are the issues of life. Friend, if your heart isn't right with God, then nothing else will be right. Not your marriage, not your career, not your friendships, not the worth and value of your service for God. Nothing will be right if your heart isn't right with God. So tonight, God's Word reminds us not to allow our own desires to triumph, not to be influenced by this world, not to be impatient, not to be unbelieving. Rather, you and I are encouraged once more from the Word of God to stand square upon the truth of His Word to stand firm in our expectation that He will fulfill His Word, and to stand up against all who would encourage us to seek a solution or a compromise that is outside of God's revealed will for us. That's what we're encouraged to do. That's the lives that we are exhorted to live. That's the example that the Word of God expects us to set, to be people of the book in every area of our life even when the going is tough. And believer, we can do all of that with absolute confidence. Why? Because our God is a covenant-keeping God. And what about Abraham and all of this? Just before you think, I'm being a little hard on the lady. What about Abraham and all of this? Abraham exi- exhibited the same impatience. He exhibited the same unbelief. And as unpopular as this may be, I believe that it meant that he failed in the area of headship. Here, undoubtedly, Abraham was the spiritual head of the family. It was to him the Lord had consistently spoken. And in verse 2, we see evidence that Abraham surrendered his headship. It tells us there at the end of verse uh, and Abr- Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. Amen, we all know what it is to be told what's right. And very often it is right. Well, actually, it's always right, isn't it? <laughs> but nevertheless, we all know what it is to stand there. I've seen a little picture of an individual, and they were given a death stare. We all know what the death stare is, don't we? It's that stare that we get until we make the right decision. And so we have to always remember that. But as much as we can joke and laugh about these things and the minor things of life, there is a serious side and indeed a vitally important side to headship. And the Bible lays down clear guidelines as to how our lives should be guided by these principles. And look, tonight I understand we might not all agree with this, but I believe it to be true with all of my heart that the biblical model of headship, when rightly applied and implemented, allows God's blessing to be known in every area of life. And without it, and I suggest that it's very evident that we live in a world without it, and so what do we see? We see society crumbling. We see governments crumbling. We see family units crumbling. We see marriages crumbling. You see, why this is so important is we must remember that just one chapter previous, a chapter 15, when Abraham had gathered together the sacrifices that were required for that ceremonial act of the covenant being assured, that God caused a deep sleep to come upon him. And in walking through the midst of that walkway created between the two lines of the animal carcasses, God took upon himself the full obligation of fulfilling all that he has spoken in this covenant. And in chapter 15, he passes alone through those sacrifices and he's saying and communicating through all of that, the obligation to fulfill all that I have promised to do, yes, even giving you a son in your old age, it falls on me. But in chapter 16, the burden of fulfillment is stolen by Sarah and Abraham. They've taken it upon themselves. And this is the moment that Sarah and Abraham were feeling God. And Abraham was forsaking his God-given role of leading the family and waiting on God and trusting in God. And we ask ourselves the question, again, did the plan succeed? And the answer is no. It brought strife into the marriage. It resulted in 13 years of silence. It didn't bring him one step closer to seeing his hopes and dreams fulfilled. It didn't see, bring him one step closer to seeing the promises of God to him fulfilled. In fact, he was as far away as ever. And I tell you tonight that in the evidence submitted here at the end of chapter 12 and the entirety of chapter 16, we see this. Abraham has many wasted years. Not only do we see wasted years, but We come to consider waiting years. Waiting years. Abraham is no doubt learning a better lesson in these two experiences. A lesson that too many Christians have to learn over and over again also. It's that lesson of living a life of faith. Complete faith in an unfailing, unchanging, all-powerful God. That sounds so easy, doesn't it? It just rolls off the tongue. Live a life of faith. It's much harder to implement. And when faced with realities that no one else is faced with, when faced with trials and circumstances which are unique in our own individual experiences, then you and I, we really struggle with that. But God's Word is reminding us that although the promises may tarry, we exhort you once more from the Word of God to wait the whole time period covered in the chapters we've studied thus far is a period of just over 24 years. We see that by contrasting two passages. Genesis chapter 12 and the verse 4 tells us there that Abraham is 75 years old when he leaves earth the Chaldees. And then in Genesis chapter 17 and the verse 24, we see that Abraham is now 99 years old. So 24 years have passed. Now these 24 years, as we've already indicated from our our earlier considerations, they involved a lengthy period of silence from God. It's in the immediate aftermath of Abraham and Sarah's plan concerning Hagar. For at the end of chapter 16, it tells us he was fourscore and six years old. And then in chapter 17 to verse 1, when he was 90 and nine years old. So there's 13 years there of a gap where God is silent. And really, a communication between Abraham and God is not recorded for us. And thus, as we come to consider waiting years, the waiting years, I submit to you that there is a connection between wasted years and waiting years. But This isn't our focus tonight because I believe primarily that as we come to consider this subject matter of the waiting years that we see here in the life of Abraham, not only those 13 years of silence, which are a direct result because of his sin, because of his shortcomings, because of his errors in regards to following God, nevertheless, the entire period of the 24 years that this covenant is made across revealed to us that in waiting, God has a specific ordained purpose— Remember, in these waiting years that we see here in the life of Abraham, God is revealing, He's confirming, He's sealing His covenant. A covenant which we identified last week was truly remarkable in its scope and in its significance. And it was a revelation of God that He didn't need to respond to the fall. It was a revelation of God that He didn't need to respond to the insurrection at Babel. For as God is giving the Abrahamic covenant, He's simply communicating to His servant, He's simply communicating to us through His Word that it was all under control. Nothing had happened in the fall. Nothing had happened at Babel. They didn't catch Him by surprise. He wasn't caught out. None of the things that are mentioned there dismantled or altered his plan and at all times he was in control and in his revelation here to Abraham in these chapters we've considered, he was validating this truth. I am is always previous. Friend, kneel that a mile deep into your soul. There isn't anything that you come to in life There isn't any problem or difficulty that arises in life where God is not previous. And in that moment, whenever trial and difficulty come to you, come to your home, come to your doorstep, God is ready, able, and willing to impart the grace that's required. He's ready, able, and willing to give that strength that is made perfect in our weakness. And He stands ready, able, and willing to ride forth Himself to the rescue of His people and deliver us. God is always previous. And you and I can be caught out so often and you and I can come to church and we can hear news that we never expected to hear on a Tuesday night when we gathered on a Sunday and it takes us by surprise and it knocks us off our feet. But God in heaven knows all things and he is previous to all that we come to. Always. Perhaps this this truth is nowhere greater communicated than in the days of death. Whenever that loved one departs and, oh, the parting is so sudden, unexpected, brings tears and deep sorrow to our lives, and we think, where, oh, where was God in all of this? I remind you, God is always previous. He knew that which was about to enter in. And even in that moment of trial, even in that moment of difficulty, he has made a way. Never forget the day that my father passed away. Sorry to be getting so personal tonight, but I think it's very applicable. But there I was, and my mom had called me and said, have you heard from your dad? No, I haven't heard from my dad. Will you find out where he is. I can't get a hold of him. He had come across to England to where we were, and he'd come to visit his brother. He'd come to visit us. He'd headed away in the afternoon from our house with his sisters to go and visit his brother. Nobody had heard from him. And so I called a gentleman in the church there who also worked for the police and he was on the motorway service. And through a process of time, he called me back and he says, stay by your phone, you're going to get a phone call. I picked up the phone the next time it rang and there was this voice at the end, it was a lady constable, and she said, is your name Johnny Armourad? And I said, it is. And she says, well, I'm calling to tell you your dad's dead. Just like that. A sudden... Unexpected out of the blue. But do you know what also came sudden? Just 40 minutes later, a text who said, I don't know the number to this day, I still haven't been able to track who down who sent it. But the text said, My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. God was previous. And yes, there was a better moment. And yes, there was a sorrowful moment. And you, no doubt, can identify in the sorrow and the heartache of so much that we talk about and rehearse and from pulpits such as this. But let me remind you that if you scrutinize that moment and if you look clearly and concisely at that moment, you will always identify the hand of God. And remember what we said, even when we can't perhaps identify his hand clearly, you can always trace his heart. The ever-loving heavenly Father who follows after us through heartache, sorrow, trial, trouble, and tribulation. He's always previous. Always previous. Psalmist had this kneeled, had he not, because in Psalm 33, in the verse 20, he says, Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 62, in the verse 1, Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From Him cometh my salvation. Psalm 130 in the verse 6. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Waiting is never easy. But waiting is part of the process. It's part of God's perfecting work in the life of his child. So tonight, if you're waiting, wait on. And allow the process to reach its expected end. And the problem that we identify here in the life of Abraham was he didn't weep. He simply tried to do it his own way. Navigate his own course. Be master of his own destiny. So you and I tonight are encouraged not to follow the example of Abraham but rather I believe that we're encouraged to implement the teaching of Paul. Come to Romans in the chapter 8. Romans in the chapter 8. Read with me from the verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it, Now, as we studied the Noahic covenant, we highlighted already that the fall of man brought consequences to creation. That's why Paul speaks of creation experiencing pain in verse 22, being subject to perpetual misery or vanity in verse 20. This was a change, remember, a marked change from its original condition. For the Bible records that God looked upon His creative work and declared it good. But now Paul reminds us that all has changed. This all means that creation is waiting for the time of God's redemption, waiting for God's perfect work of restoration, and that's what he speaks of in the verse 19. It's that remembrance, of course, that in the Word of God, we are told that there's something bigger, something better, something brighter is ahead something that Paul says in the verse 18 is incomparable to what we identify now. And this applies not only to creation, but to you and me. For we as believers experience trials, we come to trouble and misery here below, but we also are waiting for the redemption of the body, the reality of being taken from this world and being taken to the Lord. And so here we are alive in this world tonight and our days and our years are full of calamity. Yes, we experience trouble. Yes, we know the reality of misery, but we are waiting. We're waiting on God. We're waiting for God to fulfill His promises both in this life and the life to come. How should we wait? Patiently. Psalm 37, in the verse 7, the psalmist says, Rest in the Lord, wait patiently for Him. Book of Hebrews, in the chapter 6, we have these words recorded, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So we wait on the Lord to fulfill His promises in this life and in the life to come. The Word of God reminds us, wait patiently. Oh yes, Abraham made many mistakes. But there in the book of Hebrews, we are reminded that as he endured patiently, one day Isaac was born. Because God's a covenant keeping God. And so, yes, in the wasted years we see evidence of his faithfulness. Yes, in the waiting years we see evidence of his faithfulness. We consider lastly tonight then not only the, the wasted years, the waiting years, but the winding back of years. We all would like that, wouldn't we? Turn, turn back time, take a few years off the clock relive a few experiences, take back a few words, have another go at this or that. But is there a remedy to wasted years? Is there a way that we can more patiently weep? The answer is undoubtedly yes. Chapter 13 of the book of Genesis, it tells us in the first four verses that Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Here's a man who's retracing his steps. Here's a man who, after the failures of Egypt, knew that he had to draw near to God. Friend, that's exactly what you need to do today. If you're one who has wandered far from God, if you're someone who has known the disappointments and sorrows that separation brings, then clearly we identify here in the Word of God that what is required is that you make your way back to God. Retrace those steps of waywardness. And yes, you will undoubtedly bypass the wreckage of defeat, but you must, as Abraham did, head straight to the place where you last enjoyed communion with God. For Abram, it was Bethel, the place where the altar was the place where he committed himself to the Lord at the outset of his journey. But for you, it will be that place where the presence of God was a felt reality, where prayer time was sweet time, and where in the hearing of His Word, your soul was thrilled. I tell you, that's where you need to get back to. We remember from chapter 17 in verse 1 that after the chaos and calamity of chapter 16, that God's encouragement to Abram was walk before me. To be perfect. To draw nigh to God. And to be right with God. But what is. The overarching truth of all of this, God continued with the plan. God's desires for Abraham always involved blessing, always involved providing for him. Despite those backslidden days, despite his feelings, despite his impatience, God was gracious. And God was merciful. Why? Because he's a covenant-keeping God. So tonight, I encourage the wanderer to come back to him. I encourage the cold-hearted one to come back to him. I encourage the one who has tried it their way and failed to come back to him. But may we all remember He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. May God bless His Word to our hearts afresh tonight. We close with, Dear Savior, thou art mine. How sweet the thought to me. Isn't it a truth that we hold on to despite our feelings?